friends, and welcome once again to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, this was, uh, it's, it's kind of the wrap-up of uh, the, the meat part of the series. Uh, we've been um, going through the Gospels, two weeks on each Gospel, taking a look at the key question uh, that each Gospel is really addressing and the key sort of theme or motif throughout uh, last week and two weeks ago and this past Sunday, uh, what you're about to hear have been on the Gospel of Luke, uh, the image of a road, and uh, the question, how do we mature in service? So we've got this message that you're about to hear from uh, our lead pastor, Seth Kane, and then next week is going to be a very different uh, sort of service. I don't know how it's going to translate to the podcast. Uh, it may be a week where it's worth finding the podcast on Spotify uh, so you can watch it. Um, if you're, if you're used to just listening to it, or you can go to our YouTube page, or youtube.com slash at foundryc, and uh, you can find the whole service there. It's going to look and feel and sound uh, a bit different, and it won't be like a normal sort of worship, then dispatch, then bumper, then message, then response time sort of thing. It's going to be pretty different. But that's for next week. For now, please enjoy this message our lead pastor, Seth Kane. This is Rhodes, week two of two. It's week nine of the series, and we're finishing up the Gospel of Luke today. You know what they make? Sugar melts in the rain. You know what they make sugar out of? Cane. You're welcome. That one was free. I'm going to start charging for the next ones. Uh, thank you so very much for being here. You know, I was thinking as I was walking up here, like, uh, sometimes it's easy to take for granted that we get the opportunity to sit, to gather, to sing, to worship, to whatever. And as I was walking up here this morning, just looking at all the people that are here and knowing, you know, what it takes of a morning to get yourself together, especially on your day off and that sort of thing, and to make the journey and to be here. Like, I, I am truly um, grateful for you guys that you show up here and that we get to be a part of this family. So thank you to you for being here. So anyways, before he starts crying for some unknown reason, uh, we're in week nine. Get to the stuff, Seth. We don't... Emotions. Move on. Um, we're in week nine of our series, Mountain and Seas and Gardens and Roads, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Gospels uh, the way the early church would have likely understood and used and cooperated with the Gospels, and that is that it's not like four different ways to tell the same story, but it's like this story that is four different texts to four different groups of people based on four sets of historical circumstances. And so each gospel is uh, dealing with writing, answering, speaking to a particular question, which is Matthew deals with how do we face change, Mark deals with how do we move through suffering, John deals with uh, how do we receive joy, and Luke deals with how do we mature in service. And so when you put these in this order, it becomes this like four-part path, this continual like cycle, this journey that we are traveling that leads to deeper transformation. So last week we got into the book of Luke, and Luke is dealing with how do we mature in service. 
And the key metaphor for Luke is the road. We talked about how Luke is writing about a decade after Matthew is, and he's writing to this new community of Christians in the Mediterranean region, this group of people who have been cursed by the Jewish leaders, who have been uh, severed from their Jewish community, who are facing persecution from the Roman government. So this whole gospel is like, well, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we live out this new faith and go through what we're going through? Uh, And so Luke's gospel is essentially this how-to manual when it comes to actually living out your faith. So last week, we looked at uh, chapters like 1 through 10, kind of that area. So this week, we're going to move forward into like the passion stuff, because what you see, if you look closely, is that each of the passion accounts really seem to uh, focus, hone in on like the core message and question that each gospel is asking. And so when you look at this, like from Last Supper all the way through Resurrection, they're all like like honing in on what their gospel is about. How do we face change? How do we move through suffering? How do we receive joy? How do we mature in service? So let's pick up with the Last Last Supper. Um, This is Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment, uh, eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Luke designates this as the Last Supper, this Last Supper as a Passover meal. And then it says that Jesus took the cup and he passed it around to his disciples to share. And then it says he took the bread and he broke it and he gave, gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you, do this in remembrance of me. And then... After this, Luke very pointedly mentions a second cup, okay? Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, that's an important line, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table, okay? So... After this part, the disciples begin to have this like whole discussion about who could it be, and then that moves on to a discussion about which one of the disciples is the greatest, and Jesus is kind of like, well, you guys are missing the point. That's not really what we're doing here. And then he says this in Luke uh, 22, verse 7, 22, 27, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer upon on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in, the, in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in this gospel, dealing with how do we mature in service, how do we grow, how do we move forward, there are a couple of interesting things in this kind of opening scenes here, okay? So there's mention of the second cup. Traditionally, there are several cups that are drunk, drank, dranked, drank, drunkened um, <laughs> at the Passover ritual. There, I'm sure there's a proper tense there. That's not my... So Mark and Matthew mention only one cup at, at the Last Supper, but Luke's account, which differs, uh, he refers to these two cups, specifically saying the cup after supper. So at the Passover meal, this is the final cup, which is also known as the cup of Elijah. It's also known as the cup of compassion. And it was given the name, uh, the cup of Elijah, because of the story coming out of 1 Kings in which Elijah feeds a Sidonian woman. Like he offers this compassion, which by the way, is the same passage that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 is referring to uh, that we looked at last week, 
when he was saying, when he got thrown out of his hometown because he was kind of bumping up against traditional thoughts and ideas. So that's, that's where this gets its name from, the, the story of Elijah feeding the Sidonian woman. So it's the cup of Elijah, the cup of compassion. So Luke is deliberately referring to Elijah's cup to remind them, to remind this new body of, of Christ's followers that even the great prophet Elijah broke the rules of the tribe, that even Elijah extended his compassion to those beyond the chosen people. And it's in this new cup, it's out of this new cup, this cup of inclusive compassion that Jesus says, greater. They're, they're great enough to have people serving them. By societal standards, the one who is being served is greater. But Jesus says, no, 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 I've come among you as the one who serves. He's flipping their ideas of power and greatness and leadership on its head. He's saying that the, this kingdom that I was given and am now passing on to you, now passing on to the followers of Christ, the kingdom that you are invited to lead and to expand is not one of self-promotion, it's not a kingdom of climbing the ladder. It's not a kingdom of making a name for yourself. It's a kingdom of compassion. It's a kingdom of service. This is the mantle that he's passing on to them. Luke is saying to these early Christians that are in the Mediterranean region, who are being shunned by their community, who are being persecuted by the Roman government, that this is part of the way you grow and mature in your faith, is by learning to die to the self to the point that compassionate service to all becomes your default operating system. This is what this kingdom looks like, which, by the way, is basically the opposite of how we define success in America, isn't it? It's a bit strange. Now, one more little bit thing here uh, before we get into the Mount of Olives. We see Jesus predicting Peter's denial, and then there's this peculiar little discussion. Uh, chapter 22, verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, a few minutes after this, Jesus is arrested in the garden, and we see this happen. Verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw the, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear, and he healed him. So I've preached on this passage and this idea several times, um, and in Matthew, Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away. Here, he says, no more of this. Now, inevitably, when I go through some of this stuff about putting the sword away, I usually have at least like one person that feels the need to correct me on a few things about this, 
Like one time when I was preaching about put the sword away, there was one lady who was not real happy with what I said. Um, and so she, she came up to me after the service and very snidely let me know that she did not agree with what I said. And then very angrily quoted Luke chapter uh, 22, verse 36. She said, Jesus told them to buy swords, Seth. They were instructed to protect themselves, Seth. You need to read the Bible more, Seth. And then she walked away in a bit of a huff, like she had utterly defeated me. I wasn't looking for a fight, but I got one. So let me point out a couple things here that might help us to understand this a little better, because this, is, to me, is very interesting. Okay, so yes, Jesus does tell the disciples, buy a sword. Clearly, it's in there. We just read it. It's in there. So yes, Jesus does say this. But let's look at the bigger picture here for one second, okay? Luke is writing to people who were very much in a position of wanting to defend themselves, defend themselves from the Romans, defend themselves from possibly their fellow Jews. But the disciples have just come from the Last Supper, right, in 22, where Jesus establishes his new covenant in which he uses the second cup, the cup of compassion. And then he says in verse 35, hey, do you remember when I, I know, thank you, when I sent you out before, and I instructed you to not take any supplies with you. Remember that? Remember when we did that? Did you lack anything when that was happening? Right? In other words, didn't I take care of you and all your needs for everything you needed all along your journey? And they were like, oh, yeah, 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 we remember that. Yeah, thanks for doing that. And then he tells them this time, he says, hey, take your bag. If you don't have a sword, go buy one. So this time is Jesus telling them that he's not going to provide for them, so they need to grab a sword in order to provide for themselves? Like, no, I don't believe that's the case. And then in verse 37, let's look at this again. It says, it is written, and he was numbered among the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, it is written about me and is reaching fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Couple things about this. One, if Jesus' plan here is for them to fight and defend themselves, like, or whatever, this is not a good plan. This is a terrible plan. You've got... 11 disciples and two swords. Like, these guys are like fishermen by trade. They're not swordsmen. They're 11 disciples, two swords, against an angry mob with clubs and swords and the backing of the Roman Empire. This is not a good plan for the beginning of a rebellion, if that's how you're going to do it. The second thing is, is we can't read the tone here of what Jesus says when he says that's enough. Is it like, yeah, that's enough. Like, that number of swords will do the job. Is it is it, that's enough, like a parent talking to his children, like you guys think the goal here is to fight and that's what you think I've come to do? Or is it like, yeah, 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 I'm sure that's enough, like as a joke, because he understands that it won't possibly work. Like, there's an eye roll. Is there an eye roll here? We don't know. We can't read the tone. The third thing is, is that after Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, he says, it is written, he was numbered amongst the transgressors. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, uh, 53, sorry. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. This is one of the big messianic prophecies. In our Bibles, it gets titled, The Suffering and the Glory of the Servant. Uh, the suffering and the Glory of the Servant. Watch what this says. This is what he's referring to, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. This word transgressors in Luke, in the Greek text, is the word amonos, 
anamas. It means lawless, i.e., subject to the, uh, not subject to the law, being Jewish law. It means unfaithful, wicked, or criminal. So he says, go get swords so that we will be labeled as lawless, as criminals, for the sake of the prophecy. Which, by the way, when Jesus is crucified in Luke, who is he crucified between? It says, two criminals. Now, not only that, when Peter actually uses a sword to cut off the high priest's ear, how does Luke record Jesus responding? Verse 51, but Jesus answered, no more of that. And then he touched the man's ear and he healed him. So it is a bit weird that he would tell them to get swords for fighting or self-defense. And then it would, it's a bit weird to think that they would believe that two swords would be enough to do the job. And then it's even weirder if he actually wanted them to use the swords because when they actually do use the swords that Jesus told them to get, he says, no more of this. And then he undoes the work that the sword did that he told them to get. And not only that, but when you combine it with the idea of Luke writing to these people who were facing great opposition who would be looking to fight back, and then when he tells the story of the Last Supper and Jesus is using the second cup, the cup of compassion, to be the cup of the new covenant. And then when he gives like clear and direct instructions to like love your neighbor, to love your enemy as yourself, when he says things like turn the other cheek, when he says things like give even like give what is asked of you. And then even on the cross, when Jesus is hanging between the two criminals, he does not cry out for the disciples to take up arms and wage war and come rescue him so that the rebellion can continue. He cries out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them as he's being murdered. So do we really think the underlying intent of Jesus telling them to get swords is about self-protection is about standing your ground, is about waging war and violence for what we believe? Or is it possible, is it possible that we've allowed for culture and society and personal beliefs to influence what we're reading into the text? Because to me, what I see here, and based on a lot of other deep study, none of this to me would suggest that Jesus is ever advocating the use of the sword. So to my angry lady friend who accused me of not reading the Bible, yes, Jesus did say this. You were, in fact, right about that. The Scripture says, Jesus says it, go buy a sword. But I'm not sure the Scripture says what you think it's saying. I'll do my best to continue to love you, if you will give me grace as well. It's also worth noting here that we're still in the Mount of Olives, how Luke describes the scene of Judas betraying Jesus. It's really interesting because I think this ties perfectly into the idea of growing and maturing. Luke records it in a very fitting way. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them, he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Now, both Matthew and Mark record Judas giving a kiss to Jesus. But Luke says, Judas approached Jesus to kiss him, but he never actually does. In fact, it's kind of like Jesus sees, it's coming, sees it coming, and he disrupts what Judas was doing by asking this question. All right, Judas, are you really going to do this? You're going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Like, there's something here, isn't there? Like, as you've gone through various stages of your life, you've learned some things along the way, hopefully, hopefully whether we're talking about jobs or relationships or whatever, as you've gone through those certain experiences, like your radar gets a little bit better, doesn't it? 
You, you can start to spot the problems before they begin to happen. Your experience also gives you the ability to intercept, to avoid, to adjust accordingly before it happens. I think the same thing happens when it comes to our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. In theory, we should be developing greater levels of emotional sensitivity. We should be developing deeper levels of self-awareness. We should be developing the ability to see the warning signs quicker and better. You know, just this week, I was telling my wife, I said, I said you know, I feel like my tank is a bit low. I just started to notice my tank is a bit low. I had a situation earlier in the week where I noticed I was getting really annoyed and frustrated over something that I shouldn't have been, like whatsoever, something that wasn't a big deal at all. And then I kind of like, it like clicked in. I realized like, oh yeah, of course, of course, Seth. And I started thinking about like my schedule the past couple of weeks. Like my wife and I are, are training for a race up in North Georgia in October. And so we've been running a little bit more and further than we have been. So I've been physically draining my battery a little bit. I've been working on some projects in the morning before my kids get, get up to go to school. So I've been getting up earlier than I normally do. And then like I've been staying up late and working on different projects at night because I've just got all this stuff going on and then I'm getting to bed later. Well, of course, of course, you're, you're, you've drained yourself. You've drained yourself, but also, like, it was that little thing, like, that, like, snapped me into it, like, oh, man, like, buddy, you got to cut back on a few things. Like, you're, you're overdoing it. And, I, and so I need to be able to pay attention to these things. And as I've done that in my life, time and time again, it's actually helped my radar to become stronger. So now that moment that I got frustrated over something stupid, it made me realize, okay, you gotta, you gotta take a step back here and look, you gotta be, like, I need to pay attention to my emotional response levels. My kids aren't being more annoying than usual. It's just that I've wiped out my emotional bandwidth to be able to be patient with them, which then helped me to like adjust and recalibrate a little bit. I could see the potential here for something blowing up. I could see the kiss of betrayal coming, and because I could see it coming, it allowed me to adjust a bit so I could keep moving forward. Now, let's look at the crucifixion and resurrection. And again, there is so much stuff happening in here. We could take a month easy on just this stuff, but we're going to highlight just a couple things. Okay, Luke 23, 32, crucifixion. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. As we mentioned before, Jesus was crucified between the two criminals. Mark and, and Matthew both have them as rebels or bandits. John just says the two others. Luke specifies criminals in relation to the Isaiah passage. Right? He will be numbered among the transgressors, the lawless, the criminals. Jesus is being numbered here amongst the criminals. And in Luke's crucifixion scene, Luke doesn't quote Psalms 22 like the other gospels do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like in Matthew and Mark. He doesn't join uh, the disciple and, and Jesus' mother like in the book of John. Here, Jesus, while being murdered, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Think about all the connections with this. Think about how this scene drives home Luke's point throughout the gospel and how much this is part of that fourth path of growth and maturity. At the Last Supper, he uses the second cup, the cup of compassion, Elijah's cup. And this is the cup of the new covenant. Where here we see Jesus on the cross revealing this exact thing 
with this statement. He's revealing that this is the point, the compassion. Luke's point to the early believers who are trying to grow in their faith, who are being rejected from their own people, who are being persecuted by their government, his, his, his response to them and how do they handle diversity is essentially this picture of Jesus on the cross. How do you handle when people are coming at you? How do you handle when you're falsely accused? How do you handle persecution from family and friends and whatever? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. As we walk this fourth path of growing and maturity, how do we handle opposition as we risk pushback or not being understood? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. This is like the heart and soul of Luke's gospel. This is the heart and soul of how, for, how we grow and mature, of coming to a place that whoever it is we're dealing with or whatever we're facing, we're able to respond with compassion and love and forgiveness. If I'm not able to come to this place, if I'm not able to come to this place of absolute forgiveness, maybe I'm not as far along down this path as I thought. You know, the, the old order, according to the law, was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but we're moving beyond that. The thing we're doing is actually, it's a lot harder. This new covenant of compassion is growing beyond retributive justice to a place of absolute forgiveness. And this is such a powerful and revealing statement about how we are called to live and what spiritual growth and maturity looks like. Can we love and forgive our enemies? Can we love and forgive ourselves? Can we love with inclusive compassion for others? That's a tough one though, isn't it? That's way harder than eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's way harder. Because if we could just do that, if you said something mean to me, I'd just shout right back at you and then we'd call it a day. We're even, we're square, but that's not what he's calling us. He's calling us to like this next level of thing. Like, I have to take the extra step. And for the lady that didn't like what I said about the swords, I have to be willing to forgive her. I have to offer compassion. Sometimes it's hard to offer compassion when you're being critiqued, isn't it? Yeah. Now, we have the death of Jesus, and then in chapter 23, it ends with Jesus being placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, and then we get into the last chapter of Luke's book, chapter 24. We have the scene at the empty tomb, and then we have the two appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. The first is the scene in which he shows up to the two men walking on the road to Emmaus. You familiar with this? The road to Emmaus, which, by the way, speaking of roads... A couple of you have mentioned to me, you're like, hey, Seth, um, you said the metaphor of Luke is the road, but we haven't talked about any roads at all. So I'm sorry for that if I confused you. If I, so um, all throughout the book of Luke, they're traveling. You just, it's, they went here, they did this, or went up here, they got, we're on this road. So let me just, like, hopefully this will help. You know, I apologize for earlier, but hopefully this, let me just show you a few verses about traveling and being on the road which is why this is the metaphor. Okay, uh, it starts with Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Judea in chapter two, uh, verse 41. They traveled to the temple in Jerusalem and then Mary and Joseph uh, left. They traveled for a day before they realized they left Jesus, which makes me feel better about my parenting. Verse chapter three, John traveled all around the country around the Jordan, chapter four. Jesus travels to Capernaum, Capernaum to drive out demons. 
7, 11, Jesus traveled to Nain and resurrects the dead body. Verse 8, chapter 8, Jesus travels from one town and village to another. Chapter 8, verse 42, and Jesus was on his way. He healed the sick woman and he healed the dead girl. Chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus sends out the 12. And it says they traveled from village to village. Chapter 9, verse 51, said Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Verse 57 says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you. Chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus sends out the 72, and he says, do not greet anyone on the road, because they were going somewhere. Chapter 10, verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan happens on the road to Jericho. Chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus and his disciples are on their way, and they end up stopping at Mary and Martha's house. Chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus went through towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 14, verse 25, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Chapter 17, 11, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem encounters 10 lepers. Chapter 18, verse 35, Jesus traveling to Jericho encounters the blind man by the road begging. Chapter 19, verse 36, you have the triumphal entry where the people are throwing cloaks on the road for Jesus to travel. 1941, travels to Jerusalem. He stops to weep over the city. And then in chapter 24, verse 13, Jesus appears after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. So that's like 20. So the road is a pretty good metaphor for Luke. It's all about the journey. It's all about the traveling. It's all about he went to and did this. And it is interesting that the story of Jesus opens with him, with his parents, obviously, traveling to, to, um, to Bethlehem, the traveling on the road to Judea. And then the, one of the last scenes, not the very last, but one of the last scenes is post-resurrection is his appearance to the two followers on the road. The whole thing is about this journey, this journey. Okay, so Luke 24, verse 13, let's look at this real quick. Now, the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So he shows up, they're, they're just like strolling along, doing what they do, they're sad because they think Jesus is, you know, he's been murdered and now they're like, don't know what's gonna happen. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, don't you guys get it? Like these, these things had to happen, they had to happen this way because that's the way it's supposed to go. And then in verse 27 it says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he starts to walk with them through this whole thing so they can get a better understanding of, of, of everything that's been happening. He's helping them to see the big picture. And then when they finally get to Emmaus, they ask Jesus to stay with them. They say, stay with us and have a meal. Okay, and then it says this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So he sits and has this meal, and to me, this scene is a great example of this fourth path, right? It's not the exact ending of the chapter, but it definitely embraces, like, the concept of, of Luke's gospel. The two guys are on the road. They're traveling. They're sad because of what has happened, because of what they've experienced. And then along the way, Jesus shows up, and even though they don't recognize him, as they travel, Jesus is teaching them. They're learning. They're growing. They're gaining an insight, and then finally... Once they end up sharing this meal with Jesus, they have their eyes fully opened. So to the early Christians who have been severed from their community, facing Roman persecution, Luke is sending this message to them, like reminding them, you are on this journey of putting your new beliefs into practice. You may feel alone at times. You may feel sad at times. You may feel like you don't, like you don't really know where you're going, but keep going, hang in there, keep moving forward. 
Keep practicing compassion and forgiveness. And the closer you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the more intimate that relationship is, the more clear things will become. And what a beautiful message that is, I think, for us today as well. Our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity is a journey. It takes time. It takes patience. It, it, it's, you have to keep going. You have to keep growing. As, and as your relationship grows, your eyes will be opened to all the more, and your ability to see the divine wherever you go will grow with it. And what's really interesting about like, these two apparent stories you have after the resurrection is that the setting and the context are both very ordinary. They're very ordinary scenes. The first one on the road to Emmaus, it's just two guys walking along the road. The second one is like the disciples hanging out and having a meal, and then Jesus just shows up. Jesus just pops in. And I, and I, I absolutely love this. It's one of my favorite scenes. Jesus shows up, and he's like, hey, everybody, like, I'm back. Like, uh, surprise, I'm back. And they're like, no way, that's, what happened? And he's like, yeah, it's me. Check out the scars. And then watch this little line, because this to me is, is so awesome. I, I have to believe that God has such a great sense of humor with stuff like this. Because to me, this is, we, we always read the Bible so like monotone and so serious. And I think if we would learn to lighten up our approach, like it would actually reveal a lot more about the nature and character of God. But watch this. Okay, verse 41. And why they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, um, do you have anything here to eat? <laughs> no, that's funny. That, they gave him a piece. Uh, go, okay, go, go. Yeah, they gave him a piece of boiled fi broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. Okay, think think about what's just happened. Think about what just happened. This whole scene to me is is hilarious. They're hanging out. They're sad because they thought Jesus died. Jesus shows up. Is like, hey, yeah, it's me, man. Bringing myself back from the dead is exhausting. Y'all got some food? Like, that's a funny scene. You know what I'm saying? Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got some fish. Do you want fish? Is that? And then he just eats. He comes back from the dead, and then he just has a fish fillet. Like, it's a weird... It's, he's teleporting around because he's like God. He shows up to Emmaus, disappears, shows up here, and he's like, hey, I'm hungry. I need some fish. And then he just shows up and pops down for a bite of fish. I don't... Like, it's fascinating. It's funny. Like, lighten up a little bit. Verse 45 uh, says this. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Then he opened their minds so he could understand the scripture. So again, there's something here about this. As we continue in this journey, as we grow in our relationship and closeness to God, things will begin to open up to us in like whole new ways. The guys in Emmaus had their eyes open so that they could see. The disciples here having this meal had their minds open so that they could understand. Seeing and understanding comes from our persistence and our faithfulness in our journey towards spiritual maturity. These two apparent scenes are happening in like these very ordinary circumstances. They're walking, they're talking, they're eating, and yet something very divine happens in these moments. It's like Luke is telling his audience and to us, like, keep an eye out for the unexpected. Expect the unexpected, but watch for the unexpected in the like everydayness of life. Keep an eye out for these things because seeing and understanding comes from our persistence and our faithfulness and our journey towards spiritual maturity. Now, here's the thing about this. You also, as you begin to grow, can't let it go to your head. You can't let it go to your head because usually what happens at this point is that something will change again, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves climbing Matthew's mountain all over again. 
This is exactly what we see here in, this, in the very last section of chapter 24. Watch what happens. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted his hands, lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. The one that they were following, that they thought was dead, was resurrected. Things are good. We're back on track. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Something's changed. And now they're going to have to begin this process again. What do we do? How do we move through this? How do we climb this mountain of change? How do I move through the seas of suffering as I wrestle with this? Then I, how do I receive joy once I come out of that? And then how do I mature in service? By the time they get back to Luke's road next time, they will be even further along in their journey. They'll see and they'll understand all the more. And this is how it works. We go through this cycle over and over, and each time we're just a little bit further down the road. Each time we get a clearer picture of the face of Jesus. So how do we mature in service? Well, Luke seems to say that like Jesus who has come among us to serve, we embrace the second cup, the cup of compassion that is the new covenant. We practice loving our enemy. We practice turning the other cheek. We practice forgiving those who may judge or persecute. We practice approaching others with compassion and understanding. They don't know what they're doing, maybe. They don't understand it. It's, I'm going to love you through this. We keep faithful to the road. We keep faithful to the journey, to the process, with the idea that as we do, we will have our eyes and our minds opened to the divine in the everyday. All right. We hope you enjoyed that message, uh, wrapping up the Gospel of Luke and wrapping up this eight-week uh, journey through the Gospel. Again, this is a 10-week series. We had an opening sort of um, intro message. And next week, as I said in the intro, will be a very different sort of service. It's not going to be a traditional sort of service order for us. Uh, it's going to be much more experiential, so we highly encourage you, if you are here local to us in Winter Springs or the surrounding area, we would love to see you in person, and we really think you're going to get more out of the service this coming Sunday. Uh, if you are there in person, then you'll be able to online. It's just going to be a more tactile sort of physical uh, experience. But uh, whether you're joining us online or whether you're able to come join us in person, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday here at the Foundry Church. And uh, next week also on the podcast. Until then, have a great week.